Welcome to the new season of The Making Of, a Nat Geo podcast. I'm Chris Albert from National Geographic, and this season, we are diving deep with the artists who make our documentary films and series stand out amongst the rest. This is our editor's episode with a look at the artists who have to comb through thousands of hours of footage to present a cohesive story that makes an impact. Without editors laying together the work of their cinematographer counterparts with the vision of their directors, seeing the inside of a volcano or what it's like to live in the Alaskan wilderness or the portrayal of a man providing food to those who need it most, wouldn't be the same. Joining me today are three extraordinary editors, We Feed People's Andrew Morell, Life Below Zero's Jennifer Nelson, and from Welcome to Earth, Felix Black. Thank you all for taking the time to be here today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Your job is so pivotal on collaborating with your director and your producers and the team to bring raw footage to life as a cohesive and emotional story. So I would love for each of you to just take a minute and talk about your project in case our listeners aren't as familiar with it, and especially as it relates to your task as the editor on those projects. So Felix, maybe I'll start with you with Welcome to Earth. Welcome to Earth was an absolutely enormous global adventure with Will Smith going into some of the most extreme, wonderful and surprising places on the planet and really revealing alongside uh, a team of uh, other expert adventurers and scientists what you could really describe as uh, hidden worlds within our planet Earth looking at things in a new way, realising perhaps that things right in front of us aren't exactly what they seem. And to experience that with a team of some of the finest cinematographers and through the magic of someone like Will Smith was um, really a a most fantastic adventure to, to be alongside. How did your role as the editor, how did that play into telling that epic adventure? Well, I was very fortunate to work with a team that would leave you to experiment and really find uh, the spirit within a scene and also to help craft the overall narrative of of each film. So what we had were uh, footage that you were so blessed to see and also reactions and unscripted scenes with Will Smith in the most surprising places actually with a team of everyone the cameraman the sound recordist will smith the other uh, adventurers who were literally putting their lives on the line to get us this footage so whilst you have a great privilege to to literally stand on the shoulders of giants as it, as it were who can capture and create these adventures in the field it's literally like Christmas Day looking into these rushes for the first time and thinking, oh, my God, this is just spectacular. And, oh, my word, Will Smith did that. He said that. <laughs> he saw this. It was absolutely uh, thrill, no doubt. And you get taken in the most amazing places within your edit suite. But it is a um, tall task to weave it all together into a film that the audience can then feel the magic that you know is there. Jennifer, I'd love to hear a little bit about Life Below Zero. Well, Life Below Zero is a docu-series show that follows people living in Alaska, their subsistence lifestyle. We actually have four editors working on the show. Sometimes we get a fifth person. Because we are 
constantly shooting. It shoots pretty much year round so that we can include all the seasons that these people live through experience in their life. How do you go about editing? Because it's such intricate stories with all these people living their everyday lives, but yet you're making it so interesting and fascinating to watch. I think what makes the show fascinating is that most people don't have a frame of reference for what it's like to actually live subsistent lifestyle and the extreme conditions that these people live in. The winter is incredibly harsh and the summer, although it might seem more pleasant, it's not. I mean, the heat can be a factor, the bugs, the mosquitoes, you know, tromping through a forest. There's challenges with weeds and brush and the average person that's going to the grocery store to get their food, turning on a tap to get their water. It's interesting because it's outside of something that they experience in their everyday life. Andrew, talk to us a little bit about We Feed People. We Feed People is a feature documentary which chronicles the life of Spanish chef Jose Andres and the World Central Kitchen organization that he launched over 10 years ago which does disaster feeding throughout the world. And so this film came with a huge archive, and then including what we shot, it was probably a total of 1,100 hours of material shot over 10 years. I had the great opportunity to start the editing process much earlier than we were really slated to start, We received a lot of the shot material that was a lot of it was shot for internal purposes for World Central Kitchen. And I was able to like kind of go through that material and assess, you know, what is it that these people do? What, you know, what, how did Jose impact everyone? Who are some of the characters that are surfacing? And so probably back in like January 2020, I came on and really went through maybe about 200 hours of material that was shot well before COVID, well before a lot of these other hurricanes that we followed to just try and help the production crew and Ron and his team assess like what are some of the interesting things to focus on. So I had that opportunity and then I kind of went away as they did pre-production. Then I came back in late that year in October of 2020. And then we were sort of bouncing in and out of the pandemic. So there was some shooting happening and then some not obviously shut down due to COVID. So it was a long like year of editing from that point on. I think the benefit of me starting early was we were able to kind of figure out that this ultimately was going to be a biopic first about Jose, what drives him. And I think talking to Ron about it early on, it was What we were mostly interested in, like, is the character. Like, what is the central character of the film? What is driving him towards this goal? And ultimately, you know, how does he impact others and the people around him? So the editing, you know, there was a lot of sort of figuring things out as we went. There was a lot of chipping away at the footage. But what was fun about it was it was really trying to find the story early, early in the process. Ron joined our podcast and we were talking about the incredible trove of archival footage. When you know you have 1,100 hours of footage to walk into the edit, like where do you even start? How does that begin? Well, first you panic and you run for the hills and you say you want nothing to do with this. That's the first thing. And the other thing is that, you know, it's it's just a number. So first of all, I, I do watch everything. 
maybe not all at once, but I ultimately will watch the bulk of the material that's shot on any given film. But I think I also like tend to look for the redundancy. Like, what are the things that you could rule out that aren't really a part of the story? So there were many, many hours of things that were like not on topic in terms of the direction that we were taking the story in. So it was really just sort of chipping away. And because the shooting was done per each activation that they documented, and I think we cover at least half a dozen or more different activations, including the entire COVID feeding, which was covered in New York and in uh, the Navajo Nation, I was a little bit easier able to kind of focus on each activation. Like, here's the Puerto Rico footage. What is the story we're looking to tell there? Now I'm able to look for what I'm, I'm able to better examine the footage based on what I'm looking for. And with each activation, one of the big things that Ron and I discussed with the producers, Walter Madison as well, was what story do you want to tell with each activation without it feeling like it was rinse and repeat? So to really answer your question about the footage, it was that. It was like finding the specific story of that particular activation and then through that finite kind of lens, looking for the material that's going to help tell that story. That was the easiest way to sort of climb that big hill of all the material. Felix, Brendan McGinty, who is the DP of Welcome to Earth, joined us on the podcast and he was talking about all the incredible cameras that they were using from drones to the red camera, GoPros and everything in between. When you get this pile of footage from one scene done with all these different cameras, what's your approach to splicing it together and figuring out where the story is? Well, the mechanical side of it is that you will have a ginormous sync map with multiple video layers, multiple audio layers. And it is a task to really trawl through all of it. And again, just as Andrew said, you will watch every single frame. So you will go through every single camera. But the main thing initially will be to cut the scene in terms of how the sync unfolds and what the, the message and the story is within that scene. And you will then relatively quickly have a framework in terms of what happened with the main actors within that scene and how far the story can go within that scene before you get to the next. And you can then have an awful lot of joy once you've got the words and the feel and a long rough cut assemble of the scene to go through this absolutely delicious footage. All of the different cameras, especially when what's most important, especially within scenes where, for instance, Will Smith, he was extremely frightened in a number of these scenes. You know, he's, As I think we can all understand. <laughs> <laughs> when you're 3,000 feet underneath the ocean in a tiny submersible, which is cracking and creaking and groaning. He's cracking jokes, but it's literally trying to get through the, you know, these hours down in the dark depths. When you see the close-ups, when you're looking at the camera on Will Smith and you're seeing the fear within his eyes, you can really riff off of that and then build the scene around the importance of his journey through that adventure to then deliver it to the audience at home. Similarly, when you're atop a live volcano on the island of Tano in the South Pacific and you've got 
the most amazing photography, the most amazing vast drone shots going over a volcano that's spewing. You can actually almost see the shape of a face within the molten lava within the volcano itself. And then you can align that to the story that Will Smith is telling, not only of just the place, but also signifying the scientific machinations of where he is and also the story of Eric, the adventurer that's taking him on this adventure, who we find out within the film is actually blind. I know, it's such an incredible moment. It really is. Jennifer, similar question for you. Your Life Below Zero is a little bit more run and gun. You're moving with your subjects very quickly, but your team is still using GoPros and drones and other camera techniques. Talk about your process of taking that all in to tell the scenes that you want to tell. Well, I think that on Life Below Zero, when they go out to shoot, because these people are actually living their life, this is what they do, this is what they need to survive, there are certain tasks that they know that they're going to have to do. So they're going to have to go hunt, they're going to have to pick berries, they're going to have to get water, they're going to have to repair a boat, whatever it is. So there is some kind of a starting point. It's not necessarily, we don't know what we're doing today. They do say, we need to go hunting today. And I think that there's the base story and you're always creating that story around the people, but also for this show, Alaska is a character. It's part of the story. It's the people interacting with their environment and their environment changes constantly because of the seasons, because of global warming and the shifting patterns of migration and animals and all these things. And then we have sometimes things that are a little bit irrelevant, but we have this amazing footage and how do you kind of like squeeze it in and really make sure that we're sort of representing the cinematographers and their efforts as well. (laughs) So, I mean, I think it's always a similar process in figuring out what the story is first and then building from there. And I don't think necessarily that changes. There's all different types of projects people work on, but you're always kind of in unscripted. You're looking for that story. What is happening? What are they actually doing? What's happening with the characters on the inside as well? Talking about Will Smith and how he's feeling in those moments and how do you make that a part of, it's not just what they're doing, it's how they're feeling, how they're growing, how they're developing, how it changes them, those kinds of things. So I gave you all a warning ahead of time that I wanted you to walk us through the anatomy of a scene, one of the scenes in your show that you worked on a lot and what that process was like and how you got to the end product. So Andrew, if you don't mind, I'm going to start with you. Mine's kind of like a two-parter. I think one of the hardest things to kind of find when you're working on an unscripted film is how are you going to start this thing and how are you going to end this thing? The beauty with We Feed People was that we found the beginning very quickly and we landed on an end like shortly thereafter that never changed. One big thing visually for us early on was that we said that we wanted food. We talked about how we wanted food to always be the visual presence of the film because, you know, food is a universal human right. Everyone should have a plate of food. So we always constantly, whatever scene that we were working on, we definitely wanted to show the ingredients, what was being cooked, the food being served. So our film began in the high waters of Hurricane Florence down in the Carolinas. And Jose and his team are on the back of a truck. 
through driving through floodwaters just shortly after the hurricane came. And ultimately, it leads to the truck tips over. They could have lost their lives in the accident. And the food that's on board gets destroyed. And Jose, when he was being rescued, seemed to be more concerned about the food than he was about his own safety. That day, food wasn't going to get to people. So with my co-editor, Gladys May Murphy, we put together an open where we had decided that rather than this scene living inside the chronology, which primarily that's what the film is in pretty much in chronological order, that it seemed to be the best way to be our cold open to kind of grab the viewer. Because if you have to go to such lengths that you have to get on the back of the truck in the middle of a storm and drive through several feet of water to get hot meals to people in need, then you must really give a shit and you must really, really care. And you really want to get this hot meal to someone. Shortly after that is the title. And then we went into just the simple ingredients of what a man is doing to prepare a meal for his friends and his crew. And so we wanted Jose to always be talking about like the love and the time and the care that goes into a dish. So that became a constant theme. And then when we found our ending, which actually was during COVID and it was Hurricane Laura down in the southeast, we found this scene where Jose is delivering meals like door to door. We wanted to get back to the basics of one man delivering the meals to represent the group, the catalyst that inspired him from the beginning. I want to feed the people putting that hand out and handing one simple plate of food to somebody that's in need. And we discovered this scene where Jose meets up with a young boy, couldn't have been more than maybe nine or 10, this boy, Angel, who lived in this community, a very uh, impoverished community that, you know, a lot of their homes were destroyed. And he helped Jose find people that were hungry. And Jose literally got in the car and he followed the boy on the bike And they rode through. And so we thought this was the perfect ending for the film because it got back to the basics, all the helicopters aside and all the action sequences and all of the huge resources that they needed to adopt to be able to feed people, that it came back to like one simple human interacting with other humans and just that plate of food. And then like we just stumbled on the fact that by the end of that journey, Jose actually ran out of gas. Spoiler <laughs> alert, the film ends with him running out of gas. Again, like I think from an editing standpoint, the visuals of food, the beauty of food, juxtaposing that with the horrific images of destruction caused by hurricanes or whatever the natural disaster is or was, just seemed to be the right sort of balance for what they were trying to do. Because World Central Kitchen doesn't just drop canisters out of a plane and feed people. They're boots on the ground. They're there. Even in the midst of this horrific stuff, we can actually feed people this beautiful dish. And I have to say that opening, you know who the chef is. But when you see that scene, you're like, wait, I need to know what's driving him. I need to know why he's doing this. I need to know where this passion comes from. So as a viewer, it does the trick perfectly. It just drew me right in. So kudos to you on that scene. It was amazing. Thank you. Felix, I'd love to do an anatomy of scene with you from Welcome to Earth. I'm sure it's hard to pick. Yeah, well, there were six films. And so there are a team of editors that are going through all of the footage, making assembles, 
and you are then looking through vast amounts of work in terms of all of the shots that are put together, all of the locations, and then trying to figure out the basic story of each film and how that's going to be interwoven with the other adventurers in other places on the planet who are also discovering hidden worlds alongside Will Smith. So initially, because there were six films, we were looking at which film would be the first in the series, the first episode, which would be the one that's uh, at the top on Disney+. Plus. Initially, we were looking at the submersible, where Will Smith is going on board a huge ship and, and going to go 3,000 feet underneath the ocean. That was initially going to be our opening of the entire series. But we also had this scene in Tanner where Will Smith goes up an active volcano with adventurer Eric Weinmayer, and we decided upon which film would really encapsulate what was special about the series and which would really carry the adventure and the story of Will Smith discovering these hidden worlds in such a sense that would be the first film up there. And in the end, that was actually The Silent Rule. So that scene was Will Smith energy driving up through this volcanic ash, going through jungle and different terrains. And what we had to do was to get to a point where we could talk about introducing his co-adventurer as well, really displaying the unscripted sense of Will Smith being in a place that you really normally wouldn't want to be. And also all of the beautiful little moments where he was sensing and discussing and seeing elements that were to do with the ash, for instance, flying up and hitting the windscreen of the Jeep as they're driving towards the volcano. Uh, and also Eric really enjoying and being a part of, yeah, oh my word, yeah, can you sense that too? But all the while knowing that we would be exploring Eric in depth as we get to the top of the volcano, but also the way that we had to talk about the location itself. And Tanner is a very, very special place. It is a melting pot of religions and ancient tribal traditions over there. And it was very important for me as well, because I've had the pleasure of working on another documentary specifically about Tanner, to really get a sense of the place and the meaning of, of the volcano itself. And so that, in the end, was very easy to do because Will Smith had a real interest in the location, in the place, in Tanner, in the volcano. And he spoke to Jackson, who was the tribal guide who, who helped us go up the volcano and also eventually go back to the tribal village, where at the end of the film, Will Smith partakes in a dance where the story of the volcano and also the importance of the dance and the ancient way of looking at the world combine with the latest scientific research. So it was an immense sense of place, especially when you're going through the rushes themselves and you're aligning it to the story, the importance of the, of the volcano, not just as the environmental construct that it is, but also the modern-day science that's being conducted there that Will Smith partakes in himself, aligning that also to the importance of the volcano because it's not only, uh, shall we say, a portal into another world in terms of understanding sound and how we can now start to discover that perhaps the whole world is connected, not just in terms of tidal 
tides, but also earth tides and mountains shifting and moving along with the pull of um, gravity of the moon. Also, how important the volcano is to the tribes themselves. And Will Smith asked Jackson, hey, well, this volcano, how important is it to you? How legendary is this place for your people? And Jackson says, well, this volcano is like a god to us. This is a sacred place. The tribes will talk with the volcano. And that was a very pleasing way that Will Smith brought the importance of the place to the people themselves and also could use it to communicate the fear of standing over the edge, the crater of the volcano, looking down, and the most fantastic shots. We've got Eric and Will looking down into that crater. Literally, the volcano sends out a huge plume of molten lava. It was such a million and one shot to have. And also, if it were to go wrong, if one of those lava bombs were to... One strange, you know, awful trajectory and literally Will is gone, combining all of these elements into that opening scene was really the, the challenge to get the enormity of what Will was doing, but also the importance of the place, uh, the importance of Eric's story and of the science that we're trying to use to show that perhaps there's more going on in our world than we realise. That was really the the scene to do it with. It's definitely one of the scenes that people always mention when we talk about the series. So it is iconic now from that series. So fantastic job on that. Jennifer, I'd love to hear an anatomy of a scene from Life Below Zero. Well, I think, as I was saying earlier a little bit, you know, these people are living their lives. So within the context of that, we have these tasks that they have to go do. They might have a day where they go hunting and it's unsuccessful, but the next day they have to go get water and two days later there's a storm and then they have to go back and try and finish the hunt that they weren't successful at. You know, life isn't happening in this perfect little storytelling world, but when we present the stories, we sort of break them down. On this show, we have five different cast members or family groups. We call them camps that we follow in each episode highlights four of them. So we are within each episode breaking down one task that each camp is doing. So we'll say this episode, this family is going hunting and, you know, all those other things that were maybe mixed in between in real life, like getting water, getting wood, building something will go in a different episode. So you are watching all the footage that they shot for that one task that they did and then sort of figuring out how to break that down into the actual individual scenes, setting up the story, what they're going to be doing in that episode. But I think that's kind of the basics of how we sort of like start with a bigger story and then you're breaking it down into the individual scenes to tell that this is how it starts, this is the middle, this is the end. I think people that don't do the work you do, that aren't editors, think of editing as a very singular process, sitting in a dark room, working by yourself. But I actually think editing is a hugely collaborative process with your director, with your producer, with the cinematographers, with the sound, with the composer. Can you just talk a little bit about the collaboration you have experienced on the project we're talking about here? Andrew, maybe I'll start with you. And especially I'd love to hear about the working with Ron Howard. Before anything is shot, 
there's also the opportunity for the editor to actually be a part of that conversation, which is great. And so the collaboration for me starts as early as pre-production. Walter Madison, Dave Rigas, our EPs at Imagine, and Ron, there were numerous conversations around like the focus of the film and what was happening. So there's always that collaborative effort. I've mentioned earlier about assessing footage that we've acquired and, you know, collaborating and discussing the story points that we want to address based on the archival material that we got. But I would say that I can't do my job unless I'm in constant either conversation or review with another individual, someone that is living and breathing the film and actually a part of the production end of it. So I had a story producer, Dave Rigas and Walter Madison. The three of us worked like on a daily basis in tandem where shot material came in. Walter would look and review some things that he really liked. Dave would kind of dig even a little deeper and he would flag some things for me and then I would watch. So the three of us are all looking at the same material. And then I'm usually kind of set off based on a conversation that we had with Ron, the direction that we want to take the story in or the way I feel the material kind of calls its attention to an idea. No matter whether it's an assembly or a rough cut, we're sending links to Ron or we're meeting in the city and having a conversation about a particular scene or scenes. A constant evolving process, yeah? I'm not a big fan of like sitting in isolation and saying like, close the door, leave me alone and let me craft what I can and then I'll come out and show you. You know, like along the way, I definitely like to get input and I'm comfortable with sending different assemblies or selects of things for them to review and look at. And then I even get notes from the DP. I get notes from the crew on the location, the EPs based on a point of view that we're for the client, for NetGeo, or you know how we're trying to address a certain story point. So it is undoubtedly a collaborative effort from beginning to end. It's a constant circle of work. Jennifer? There is a lot of it where you're sitting in a room by yourself pushing buttons, <laughs> but we have people out in the field and they have field notes. It goes to a story team and they are giving you a starting point. This is what we think this camp story is going to be. And once you get everything, you are putting it together and having new ideas and you go back to the story person and say, hey, I have this thought. What do you think? You talk it out and you might make changes and then, of course, at the end of the process, when it's all done, there is a note process where everybody is able to give you a different perspective. A lot of times as an editor, we don't have direct contact with the field, but we have other people making that connection for us. So they say, hey, we showed this scene to so-and-so that shot it. Did you also see this footage? We just want to make sure. How did this look? So it is very back and forth. And you can tell as it comes together. Felix, I'd love to hear about Welcome to Earth and the collaborative effort there. It's a vast process. And also, ultimately, everything goes through Darren Aronofsky. So he will see absolutely everything which is done in terms of the film and and what's coming out of the edit suites. But conversely, the great thing, working with a team as talented as we had on Welcome to Earth, they do give you the license to be in that dark room, to go off and experiment. I love to be completely alone with the rushes, doing the audio work, finding the story, 
and crafting to then give it back to the lines effectively. So I worked with a fantastic producer, Ben Devlin, who had also finding the, the, the real characterful moments and helping to sometimes illuminate very sensitive subject matter too in terms of revealing, when working with Eric in particular, revealing to the audience that he is blind, that he is sensing things that no one else can. He can feel this sub-audible instances coming from the volcano and using that interplay with Will Smith. All of these things, I, I had a great team around me in particular, the um, Isek and Graham Booth was absolutely intrinsic in helping to direct the edit itself to really make sure that these scenes were singing in the best way that they could. But in order to do that, they let you off the leash to really work with the music, work with the sound, in particular when the film itself is about the meaning of sound and how magical it can be in terms of finding out things about our planet which we didn't know before. And then, of course, the team that you would have around you will help you to craft and direct what you're doing to really push it to the nth degree to make sure that you're getting the greatest version of the story across that you can. So I'd love to get nerdy for a second and ask you what systems you all are editing on, what tools are you using? Felix, why don't you go first? I recently migrated from Mac to PC. So I'm working on Avid Media Composer on my PC. I've got an extremely powerful PC. Basically, that allows me to uh, use an ultra-wide monitor, which is absolutely wonderful for getting an overview of the timeline on Avid Media Composer itself. And then I have a secondary 4K monitor with which to get a you know, lovely big view of what I'm cutting. I also love working with sound as well. So I've got a lovely mixing desk and tannoy and monitor speakers so I can really feel as much as I can what I'm working with. Andrew, what are you using? It's funny because I would say since lockdown, I was on a Mac as well. And then when COVID hit, I realized I was going to be in my basement for the time being, and I'm still in my basement. Um, <laughs> Many of us are. <laughs> which is fine. You know, we get out like everybody else, and I've been healthy. But I also migrated to a Windows platform because I was able to get a, a much higher-end system with all the bells and whistles. I have a three-monitor system, so I can have a lot of bins open and displays uh, available to me. Don't use it for finishing, but I have a huge sound effects library. I have access to music, and in my studio, there's also a client monitor when and if somebody does come down and watch with me. And Jennifer, what is the Life Below Zero team using? We also use Avid Media Composer. Prior to the pandemic, we were all in an office working on Macs, but now we work on Macs and remote into a PC because where everything is stored for security reasons and whatnot. We all need access to the same footage, so that's the safe way that they have us. All the footage is stored at one location. We're all remoting into computers there, which are PC, but working on Macs at home. So I'd like to end with one last question, which is all of our FYC podcasts are about storytelling, and editing is such a pivotal role of storytelling. What drew you to your craft? Why was this something you wanted to do? And what did working on this project mean to you? Felix, why don't you start us off? I went to art college and I worked with 
using concrete to make sculptures and I painted with acrylics, you know, using knives. And then I mutated into trying to get across a message using photography. And then I went into short films, uh, film installations. And that was the way that I was uh, editing, experimenting, trying to create something that interested me and also would mean something to hopefully even just one other person. And that was what the editing process in making art then drew me into wanting to tell a story through the documentary means and that was what really kicked off getting my hands on on an avid putting stuff together and trying to get a story out that way and that's what drew me into editing jennifer well the interesting thing about this question is that if you ask any two people or any hundred people how they got there it's going to be different for everybody exactly that's why i love it because <laughs> it shows other people that there is no singular path to getting into the field that you all are so accomplished in there really isn't no <laughs> so i actually my entire life until even my first couple years of college i wanted to be a marine biologist somehow i when i was in college i started taking all these different science classes and I thought, whoa, maybe I want to do this. Maybe I want to do that. Now I don't know what I want to do. And I don't know how I made the jump to wanting to do something creative, but I had taken an advertising class and thought it was horrible. I just morally and ethically, it wasn't for me. And it just happened that the college that I went to had a program that had some TV, film and radio under a communication arts degree. And the pathway just kind of it's just kind of the road that opened up for me. And I kind of continued in that direction because it caters to a lot of things that I actually enjoy. I always loved puzzling and problem solving when I was a kid and especially non-scripted. I mean, that's what you're doing. Like, how do I put this thing together? How do I make all these pieces fit? It very much activates that part in my mind that loves to do that. And then when I was in college, one of the classes that really had an impact on me was I took an ethnology class. And again, coming back to what we do, a lot of it is people and understanding people and how they're interacting with each other or with their environment or whatever that is. And I always kind of joke that editors should have an honorary major in human behavior. Uh, <laughs> that's a lot of how you're showing people you really have to understand how people work and what drives them and understanding how people are. And so again, those interests kind of came together in this field for me and how I got here was just a little bit of luck, a lot of hard work. And, you know, again, kind of fortunate enough to have that pathway sort of the universe kind of guide me down the right road, make the right turn. So <laughs> that's great. I love that. Andrew, I'm going to give you the final word. I have always been a film buff, and I was a history buff when I was younger, and also a very visual person. All of my memories there is usually triggered by like one sort of iconic or strange image. It's probably the case with most people, but I always consider myself like the easiest way to explain something is through visuals. So I really got into filmmaking and wanting to tell stories and real stories about real people, because people also fascinate me. A mentor once said to me, with filmmaking, you should trigger the senses of seeing and hearing, but often not all at once. I didn't really understand what he meant by that. And then he said, we see black, we hear a voice, then we hear some music, then an image. And it could be that simple. 
And so like, to me, it was always like the simplicity of like, you trigger the senses, but not all at the same time. It's sort of a form of manipulating the viewer and a point of view and how you want them to see things. So all of that sort of fascinated me, experimenting with that. And I was also fortunate enough to start where I was editing film. And when I was editing film, I felt like I learned the discipline of being really precise about what it is and the decisions that I was making in editing. You have this physical connection to the film itself and the manual labor of doing it, you would decide on where you wanted to make the edit. And then you, as you were cutting and splicing, you thought about what you just did. And then you, you start thinking about the next thing you're going to do so that the immediacy isn't forcing you to make a decision. So that physical connection and just the fascination with wanting to play with people's senses and how they perceive and see things, that just made an endless opportunity for me to explore that I knew that I loved editing. I think that is such a great note to end on. Thank you, Jennifer, Felix, Andrew, so much for joining us. Such a fascinating conversation. And congratulations to all of you on these incredible projects. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you. Cheers, Chris. Jen and Felix, great work too, by the way. Same to you guys. From National Geographic headquarters in Washington, D.C., this has been the making of a Nat Geo podcast. I'm Chris Albert, and I'd like to thank my guests today, editors Felix Black, Andrew Morrell, and Jennifer Nelson. For more information on Welcome to Earth, We Feed People, and Life Below Zero, please visit natgeotv.com backslash FYC. That's a wrap. The making of a Nat Geo podcast is a National Geographic production. Executive producers Chris Albert, Raquel Bravo, and Jennifer Driscoll. Hosted by Chris Albert. Written and produced by Dave Beezing, Angela Pirelli, and Thomas Green. Michelle Vensel, Production Coordinator. In association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands. <laughs>